Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. We're going to post a two-part interview with Dr. Sam Fielendorf about heterogeneity. The first part will include some principles in managing for biodiversity, and the second part will focus more on what the implications are for grazing management if we're managing landscapes for heterogeneity. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Sam Fielendorf. Maybe just to shift a little bit towards some of the benefits for ranchers uh, to manage toward heterogeneity. Uh, you give an example in the paper on pattern and process of uh, smaller pasture sizes and in that decreasing animals' abilities to exercise what should be instinctual behavior to deal with their own needs. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and you know a lot of the, a lot of that is uh, is uh, well, some of it's rooted in our research, but some of it is also with colleagues and uh, uh, a co-author of the the book chapter on heterogeneity that we wrote is uh, Richard Finn, and and he's done a really good job of uh, highlighting in Africa, and I think the same would be true here, uh, although in some cases it's difficult. Uh, at how animals need different plant communities at different times of the year and that they, the way they deal with stress is they move. And, and so that's, that's really the, the take home, the way they, the way an animal deals with stress. So the old saying is they can adapt, move or die. And really the only one that's suitable to a rancher is move. <laughs> and, uh, so, the problem is if we manage everything to look the same or if we have uh, real small fences, there's not just a whole big area they can move to. So we've sort of limited their own ability to cope with stress. Right. Nutritional, thermal stress. Right. Exactly. Minerals, whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, in some cases we've even done that with say breeds of livestock where we've sort of created homogenous, uh, uh, conditions there as well. And, but, but that's sort of a longer term perspective, but, but when you think of, uh, uh, small landscapes and, uh, or small pastures even, uh, and restricted movement, then, uh, you know, you have lots of, uh, of management related issues that come up from, uh, more tightly held, livestock but uh but probably the bigger impact is uh just their ability to deal with stress but but some of that I, admittedly i mean you you guys on your podcast have done a great job of, of talking about uh how everything's sort of contextual and uh so the context that i'm saying that from is that uh you know i don't find it an attractive idea personally to have to move livestock every day or less than a day. Uh, but, but some people do, 
So, uh, but I do think there's a danger in that. And um, when you look at how animals use landscapes, obviously at some point, really large landscapes that don't have much water distribution become not very useful to certain kinds of herbivores. But, uh, but the same can be said with going the other direction. Yeah, I think the context is relevant also to your, I mean, your, your physical context there in Oklahoma is that you're surrounded by typically smaller management unit sizes and probably significantly more homogeneous uh, pastures than than what we would see if you go just a little bit further west from you. That, that that's definitely true, and and. Uh, you know, it, and and it's curious that even regions that have pastures that are smaller on average than a hundred acres, the primary grazing conservation that's done there is cross fencing and water development. Even though uh, that's sort of not uh, a critical issue, but and and you know, I have worked in in larger landscapes and in more. Uh, arid systems and there's definitely a difference and it's sort of like it's interesting to find the similarities and the differences that occur across different regions because uh they're they're both real and and in a lot of ways more informative from a a broader picture yeah in some respect it feels like we're going uh back to the future a little bit in the effort toward uh, letting animals exercise some of that instinctual wisdom. I work with a, a rancher here on a, oh, not a very big grazing lease, but about a 5,000 acre area. And, uh, you know, he's old school from New Mexico. Uh, and <clears throat> this is a place that used to be a WSU research station fuel station and back in the 70s and 80s they had lots of grad students there all summer doing research and uh, some of that was done during the during the peak of the cross fencing frenzy and he's constantly telling me that he found another fence somewhere <laughs> that used to be there <laughs> and he's constantly cursing those WSU people he calls them the WSU researchers wanting to fence the whole world he's constantly wanting to take fences out in order because he prefers to herd the animals and let them go where they want to go and then you know place them periodically so that they can best meet their own needs and uh, is moving away from extensive cross fencing yeah and and you know i uh I encounter and it's entirely more, instinctual on his part, not academic. <laughs> right, right. I encounter a lot of people that are headed in that direction. But, you know, uh, a lot of the grazing management controversy. So, for example, a lot of people are aware of the the paper that I'm that I'm an author on with David Brisky that that sort of challenged rotational grazing. And um, and one of the. You know, it, it was an, a paper authored by a lot of people, and so you have to discuss what the perspective ought to be. Well, the perspective that I came to that from was much different than the paper ended up looking hmm. like. Um, my 
perspective was that I knew of really large ranches. In fact, I knew of one specifically that was very large with very few pastures that had uh, an invasive plant on it that they went to the NRCS to see if they could get some cost share. And they basically had this large landscape with very few fences that they they grazed really lightly. And it was really a well-managed ranch, but they had different objectives than some ranchers. And uh, the only way they could get cost share money was to cross fence. And right. so, so my perspective of that discussion was not so much should a rancher rotationally graze or not, because I think ranching, it's like the title of your podcast, The Art of Range. There's more to it than just what the data says. But my take home on it was that agencies should not be telling people that they have to do that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like we had gotten into a culture where that was the solution to everything. And the cost share money supports that on private lands. Um, yeah. So, so it's sort yeah, that's of like become the tool, uh, right. the, the only hammer in the box. Right. Exactly. And so I, I think it's a, it's a great tool, <laughs> but it's just one of a bunch and there's probably a lot of ways to use it. Yeah. I think that's an interesting uh, perspective. I, I have felt since those papers originally came out that to some extent you've got people kind of talking past each other and I'm not so sure that the perspectives are mutually exclusive or irreconcilable. You know, the idea that we're trying to mimic historic grazing patterns and wild ungulates is a good one. And I think in terms of trying to apply localized intensity, uh, that's one of the things that, that you would argue is pretty important. Uh, Right. But the idea that we can apply that with perfect evenness across the landscape is where, is where it, it doesn't work. Exactly. And, and I, I, uh, I have in the last 20 years or so met a lot of people that use rotational grazing systems in different ways. And by far the vast majority of them are sort of shooting for this principle of uniformity, but there are some that are trying to promote heterogeneity and there are some pretty innovative ways of doing that. Yeah. And I think in the West, on rangeland systems, I, I work with. I would say that a lot of the guys, a lot of the ranchers that I've worked with, who have done, you know, some kind of a uh, whatever you want to call it, holistic management training, have much more open and robust decision-making processes. They've got, I guess, a wider array of mental models to work from than people that don't. And what that looks like in actual management on the ground is that, uh, you know, their version of rotational grazing is allowing long regrowth periods so that everything that should be in the landscape has time to be expressed. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, and so I guess the, the frequency of, of regrowth or the frequency of grazing then is the critical factor. You know, if you're, if you graze for a day and then come back in a week, that's a whole different thing than if you graze for 
two weeks and don't come back for a year. You know, right, right, exactly. I mean, there's a wide range of variability in the term rotational grazing, uh, and, and and those tend to be beneficial. They they sure can be, and and you're right. I mean, if you read some of the uh, really management intensive stuff, it's really focused on holding the vegetation at a sort of constant height and the uniformity sort of thing, but. But there's a lot of different ways that could, that it can be done, and uh, there are examples out there for sure. One of the uh, one of the ideas that really stuck with me from uh, my reading and interview with Fred Provenza is that nature fills voids with individuals, not populations. Uh, there was somebody from California who was talking about mineral consumption that they were doing some research on, I think on some forest service land in the mountains of California. And they had a way, they had a way to weigh the amount of mineral that individual cows were consuming and found gigantic variation, variation in amount, variation in frequency, variation in timing. You know, some cows would come and, uh, gulp down three pounds of mineral at one time and then not come back for a couple of weeks. Other cows would show up, you know, every day or every other day and just take a couple licks. Uh, But in, in thinking through, you know, how do we manage for this? It seems like um, one of your arguments is that, is that if we give animals the freedom to to meet their needs kind of on their own terms, that that likely is good for the animal and good for the rancher's bottom line instead of assuming that we know what they need to eat and when and where. Right, yeah. And, you know, uh, rooted in some of this, uh, there's a lot of, uh, as you know, there's a lot of uh, foundational work from long ago and um but I find it really interesting that um and and this relates back some to the Dykstra House discussion. Um when you look like in in this part of the world, you know, there there are the big four grasses are really important, at least in tall grass prairie. And that's uh big blue stem, Indian grass, switchgrass, and little blue stem. Well, Everyone thought those were good. Cattle loved those. And so they really forced the systems to be more uniformly dominated by those plants. Well, what happened is it ended up that they had to come up with special livestock uh, uh, management approaches because those plants are really high quality forage and really good, but only from about uh, middle of April to, uh, the middle of July. Yeah. So, uh, so then they, you know, then, so the, the best system is just stalker cattle's really, stalker cattle really intense during that period. So it's, um, and that doesn't even consider that individual, the individual variation that you might have, but the, the idea of, sort of just really narrowing in on the dominant, most productive plants has led to a nutritional simplification, both in time uh, and throughout time. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, that is really difficult to deal with uh, from a management standpoint. So it's so I guess the point I would make uh, related to that is that's in part because we actually the range profession sort of incorrectly pointed everyone to the wrong target. <laughs> and right. uh, I, not to say, in fact, the management systems that are focused on those four dominant grasses have adapted really well and they're very productive. They're just very limited in their options. And uh, um, so, so I do think uh, that, there's if you start thinking of the world as heterogeneous, then the Provenza comment uh, starts to make more sense as well. And all of a sudden you start to see variability at a lot of different scales and different kinds of variability. And of course, you know, the extreme example would be that you need a whole bunch of different herbivores out there. But th- some of those things are extremely impractical from a production standpoint and so it's sort of like you have to pick and choose but um sort of just moving everything to sort of the agronomic perspective doesn't seem to be very productive right so one approach would be to attempt to engineer that heterogeneity right and you're saying that's probably not there's probably still too much arrogance in that as well well i'm not smart enough to do it so maybe someone else is <laughs> yeah <clears throat> i feel like uh, i still want to try to get down to what might be some some principles for managing or for you know tweaking a person's grazing management if if they feel like they've been stuck on those four big propers you know, so that's this is the million dollar question. If I'm I'm if I'm giving someone an elevator speech on what I do, you know, you meet someone in the grocery store that you haven't met before, and you tell them you work for Extension as a range and livestock specialist. Those words have almost no meaning. So, you know, I tell somebody that that as a culture, it's it's valuable for us to be able to grow food and fiber for human use on naturally occurring plant communities. Uh, and, and this really is almost a case where you can have your cake and eat it too, where we can, we can still, if, if we maintain landscape scale, ecological patterns and processes, we can, we can generate um, some of these products, I guess we can use that term, for, for human needs in the same space that we're producing wildlife habitat, clean water, open space, you know, the, the, the whole list. And I feel like that's a, a pretty big thing culturally, and that if we can do that well, we should pursue that uh, and try to understand it better. You know, and then, and then what, how do we, how do we make decisions about what specifically to do? You know, when a rancher gets up in the morning he actually has to make uh, he can't he can't work in the abstract <laughs> right he's got to do something you know a grazing plan is where the animals are going to be when and where and and I would say why and that my my own efforts as an extension range specialist have been to help ranchers answer those practical questions of where are the animals going to be and when and why 
and and how do I decide that? And I guess my starting point philosophically is that if you, you know, I guess to back up, a rancher tends to come at it from the animals' perspective. You know, what do I do that? What do I do that takes care of the animals? Right. And I've tried to get ranchers to to back that up a step and say that if you take care of the plant community uh, long term, that that will take care of your livestock and therefore your bottom line. And ranches that are healthy tend to be ones that have uh, a fairly healthy um, plant community. So where do we where do we start with planning grazing and making actual decisions about where animals go when uh, from that perspective? And I and from my you know from my own con- context, my contextual perspective is that uh, at least in much of the Pacific Northwest and a lot of the West, people have access to larger landscapes and they're not necessarily having to deal with, you know, a 50 acre chunk to apply this. You know, we may be working with a many thousands of acres from, uh, you know, a, a thousand acre lease to 25, 50,000 acre landscapes. How do you begin to make some decisions about that? Well, I, you know, I think the greatest challenge uh, is in the matching up of of actual land management objectives with specific targets to achieve those objectives, and and I realize this is almost uh, back behind actually how what would the principles be, but. I find the biggest challenge when I talk to people that are trying to manage land is actually getting them to actually say what their real true objectives are and yeah, what, what do they actually want? And in fact, often it'll be, well, I want to manage the land for the future or something to that effect, which is really good, but it's sort of like, well, okay, but you you want to get livestock production, but okay, you also there's also all of these other ecosystem services and goods, and so it seems to me like um, the first real big issue is a solid set of objectives that are are attached to targets that would achieve those objectives. So, sort of like the example I gave earlier of the refuge manager who had good had well-defined objectives, but the target didn't match the objectives. And some of that is the challenge that often we may not know what that target is. But, uh, but uh, in fact, this conservation of pattern and process, that paper developed from uh, me being asked to participate in a symposium where I was supposed to talk about how different would the rangeland profession be if the origins of it had been, let's just do conservation on rangelands without a focus on livestock production. And there's a lot wrong with that assumption, but, but that was the, that's what I was asked to talk about. And so it kind of grew into this interesting discussion that then I tried to relate back to modern uh, range management. But I think the, the the assumption had always sort of been that good range management is good wildlife management and good water management and all of that can be true 
but it is so dependent upon linking the objective to the target and 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 sort of the feedback loops in there as well but also then ultimately honestly <laughs> recognizing the trade-offs because most you know if you were going to manage the great plains for conservation of biodiversity you would have to have the entire great plains and nobody has that so you have to just rationally recognize that some things are going to be harder to do at the same time as some other things because you don't have a large enough piece of property um, but to me that's the first hurdle then beyond that to actually come up with principles and in fact at the end of the paper I sort of thought we had those four propers, so maybe I would try and come up with my own versions of those. And uh, and they're not very satisfying <laughs> because, uh, because they aren't very uh, concrete, but I hope that the public will recognize that the uh, uh, – that I'm suggesting that they shouldn't be very concrete. So large landscapes – that's the most important thing to be able to do a lot of different things. I still think uh, stocking rate is very important and, and so forth. I, I uh, obviously a heavily overstocked landscape sort of limits the amount that you can do with that from a, uh, uh, from a lot of perspectives, but, but, but similarly, maybe a, a, an understocked landscape. But, but the, the general principles would be sort of nothing, no single condition is right everywhere. Um, management should be flexible. And I think that's one of the challenges is that uh, the natural resource management pathology doesn't allow that to happen. And, you know, landowners are... Uh, hands or, or land managers, hands are uh, often tied. Uh, and, um, you know, on the one hand, a piece of land may look bad because it's overgrazed. And on the other hand, they might be uh, promoting prairie dogs on another piece that would have similar uh, land form. So it's sort of like this, this top-down confusion, not to mention that uh, uh, more flexibility would uh, would be uh, a strong. I, I found it to be really interesting as I've gotten to get along in my career a little bit. Uh, I've been invited to talk in a lot of different environments, and uh, I my education is rooted in range, but I've gotten engaged in the um, you know, in conservation biology and organizations like that. And it's really interesting how much lack of understanding there is between disciplines. Um, and, and I think that that's something I really tried to do a better job of is to try and write papers that might be common sense to the range community, but maybe it's more addressed to the conservation community and then do the same thing uh, in the other direction. Because I do feel like your earlier statement that, 
these large landscapes that are where we want to do have goods and services, including livestock production, or a way to have our cake and eat it too, is exactly right. But I don't think that's widely appreciated outside of the rangeland community. And and I do think that conservation biology can teach the rangeland community stuff as well. But um, and there's some legitimate trade-offs there. I mean, as you mentioned, if if I'm a rancher, say on a 25,000 acre landscape, and I'm managing with a fairly light stocking rate, uh, the rancher recognizes that he has the same fixed costs, whether he's got 200 pairs there or 400 pairs there. And he senses intuitively that because he's been managing pretty conservatively, he could very likely bump his numbers to 300 head without probably without much loss of ecosystem functionality at least not in most years right and so you know there's benefit to him in terms of profit of bumping his numbers and and likely could um but there probably is some loss of uh, other ecosystem goods if you do that in terms of habitat. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a real desire to be extremely idealistic in the conservation community. And, you know, I get it. Uh, but the reality is everything has trade-offs. And, uh, and I, I think until we can actually have a discussion about those trade-offs and acknowledge that, uh, I mean, even if you're just wanting to do conservation, I – quite a few years ago got invited to Wyoming to work to interact with um, sort of at the interface between conservation people and, and ranchers and the ranchers were in a a horrible uh, situation where they had, uh, you know, I don't know, six or seven candidate species to be listed and they all had very different habitat requirements and everyone was sort of yelling at each other about uh, what the land ought to look like. And if, you know, if you're the species X biologist, then uh, you think everywhere in the world ought to look like what species X requires. And if you're species Y, that's not good. And, uh, and it just can seem almost, um, uh, you know, it, impossible to overcome and uh and you know the the challenge is well can we come up with some principles and you know and i think um uh i think we could but i honestly think i need help doing that and i actually need a lot of help from people that are more familiar with how to manage land uh and i i have seen examples of it and i've written some academic work, but I think there are probably a lot of people out there that could uh, do a better job at uh, coming up with innovative ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's reasonable uh, socially to incentivize, say, incentivize, mon- incentivize monetarily uh, light stocking rates in order to optimize the production of ecological goods and services? Oh, gosh. I, that's an interesting uh, idea. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, they are, they do that. There are some cases even just on private land where, uh, uh, with the lesser prairie chicken initiative here, which has um, had some similarities to the sage grouse initiative mm-hmm. of uh, trying to get people to uh, reduce their stocking rate, at least on certain portions of their property. But, but I've actually struggled with them to have argued, well, that's really not what needs to happen for the chicken or for the ranch or for the grassland or uh that in reality what you need is somewhere on the landscape for there to be nesting cover and somewhere for there to be lecking cover and somewhere for there to be brood rearing cover and then all of that needs to fit in a way to meaningfully manage a ranch mm-hmm. and uh which i do think we yeah and i do think we've come up with some specific ways to do that but i uh uh, I imagine there's a lot of different ways that that could be done. It would be fun to lock a bunch of people in a room and make them come up with 10 different ways to do something like that. Yeah. No, I agree with you that uh, one of the more productive spaces that, that we occupy as, uh, you know, range professionals is this area between um, the the world of conservation biology and the world of the rancher. Uh, those are two groups that tend to be fairly antagonistic toward each other, at least in private, but but actually have remarkably similar goals in terms of what needs to be on the land. And it seems like there's uh, some low-hanging fruit there, um, you know, what Rick Knight calls the, the radical center. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, there, there, there is a lot of room for uh, co- cooperation and collaboration there. there. It is important, though, to rationally sort of say, yeah, but some of these things do have trade-offs. You know, uh, right. uh, the the prairie dog example is one that I, I know my grandmother homesteaded northeastern Colorado. And in her later years, she would often say there were a lot of things they did wrong. But the one thing she wasn't willing to wobble on was that she did not like prairie dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, there are some things like that that I think – we have to recognize that whether they're cultural or they're truly ecological, but that, 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 that there's no win-win sort of solution or that it's a lot more yeah. difficult. At least not on her place. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I do, I do think uh, that, and I, and I, you know, occasionally you see some, uh, some indications that, that, uh, the world is moving away from the simplified cows versus no cows or cows good, cows bad. Right. Um, and, but, but also occasionally I, uh, you see it slip back into that discussion. So, well, I can think of several benefits or what I think are likely benefits to ranches of grazing for heterogeneity. And I'd like to conclude our conversation with, with some of that 
Uh, and you can tell me whether any of this has some support in in scientific literature. Uh, it seems like, as a general principle, animal health is supported by biodiversity. You know that when animals have access to a wide array of plants at various stages of growth, at different times of the year, uh, that that they're going to select, you know, whether they're wild animals or domestic animals, they're going to select individual plants and plant parts that meet their needs. And that has uh, a, a definite tangible benefit to a ranch's bottom line. Uh, do you feel like that's borne out in reality or is that pie-in-the-sky philosophy? I, a little of both, but, but not, okay. not totally pie in the sky, just that I think some of that we, there's some of it is a good hypothesis. Some of it has been tested, but there are some other aspects of animal health that have come out. Uh, uh, we did some studies here and of course this is also connected with the whole pyric herbivory. So it's not just generic heterogeneity may have a connection to fire as well but um where uh tick numbers and horn fly numbers were uh managed by providing uh this patch structure these animals grazing very heavily on local spots that had been burned they ended up with much lower uh pest um, so that hmm. has, that's another aspect, the diet thing. And I, I heard, uh, uh, and I'm intrigued by that. And I, you know, the stuff that Fred Provenza talked about on your podcast is very intriguing that, you know, the connection between diversity to animal health and then even to human health yeah, is, uh, very fascinating. And I think it's, so when I said it was pie in the sky, I don't mean that it's not true i just mean that some of that it's sort of varying levels there are some indications that that might be the case and mm -hmm. and some of fred's things about self-medicating uh livestock you know that self-medicate from diet that's a great example of that so i do think there's quite a bit of indica indication that there's some value in that another idea that seems uh it seems for sure possible and maybe supported is, is that you've got more stable forage production if you have uh, botanical diversity because you've got different plant species that will respond differently, you know, both positively and negatively, whatever negative might mean, to different kinds of disturbances. And so if you've got, if you're managing for heterogeneity, you should have more stable forage production uh, because you're you don't have all your eggs in one basket does that work out yeah and in fact uh i can think of two examples that i've worked on so you had brady allred on uh and when brady was here uh he uh he actually did a study where we looked at uh numbers of patches in a tall grass prairie from uh one which isn't really a patch to uh eight and we looked at 
livestock production over, I think it was six or eight years. I don't remember exactly, but um, it basically, so what happens is if you manage everything uniformly for the most productive system, then, uh, then you get, when it rains a lot and the conditions are right, you do get more production. But the rest of the time, you actually get it. It becomes strongly dependent upon rainfall, mostly. Right. And um, when you manage for patches, you actually get uh, a much more stable. And in fact, you break the relationship with rainfall. There wasn't was not even in a significant relationship. So that that case is right. Then the other one that I did on uh, my PhD, I looked at uh, long-term vegetation change associated with different grazing in semi-arid lands in West Texas. And uh, one of the things that we did is uh, look at the relation, which month had the strongest relationship with each of the dominant plants. Hmm. And when you get to, when you look at, like the 20 dominant plants, some of them even had a lag, but they just spread out over the calendar. Meaning that if you had a mixture of species, then you can actually more likely be able to capture resources that are available at different times of the year. So that's sort of a different scale because that could all be in one patch, but but it's the same idea that diversity matters. Right. And one other, um, I guess, ramification of that is that if, if we maintain a, a variety of grazing use pattern, and grazing is one process, interacting with other processes in a landscape so that you've got uh, a, a, a mosaic of plant species, a mosaic overlaid on that with degree of grazing intensity and utilization uh, that will one one that will promote continued plant diversity. Uh, but a lot of the research on the relationship between grazing and fire, has shown that, uh, yes, you have some reduction in fuel, but more importantly, you have uh, some breaks in the continuity of fuel. And so that affects the spatial extent of fire and the severity of fire. And therefore, you know, how many perennial plants get killed by a fire. And so maintaining this uh, diverse pattern of grazing use helps avoid catastrophic fire. So you would say we shouldn't be afraid of fire. We just don't want five counties to burn all at once. Right. And, and in fact, I, I would say, uh, and, and we've done some of this, but, uh, but I think there's plenty of room for a lot more about how to use fire and grazing to, uh, to make a system or landscape that actually absorbs fire instead of is destroyed by fire. And, and a lot of that is perspective, but, uh, um, I, I think using grazing and fire can make it where when and fires will still occur, but when they do, they won't be quite as devastating. And we have a recent paper. I had a PhD student, Heath Starnes that, uh, 
looked at when we coupled grazing and fire and created the spatial pattern, how much longer do we have of reduced fuel uh, compared to, say, just using fire alone, or you could look at just using grazing alone. And the idea is that the space, really, you need the spatial pattern and you need, uh, uh, you need the two interacting together. Uh, part of the challenge, and some of this is local to this region, but um, in terms of fire, if, if a fire here, you have, uh, if you don't graze it, then you have enough fuel in, in terms of just fuel loads in six months to have an uncontrollable wildfire. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, if you don't graze it. So, um, I, I, you know, that would be very different in different landscapes. But, but the idea that, uh, that fire could be used to help absorb fire or fire and grazing could be used is some, and I've worked on it a little bit in, in, in other environments than here, some, some in Montana, uh, and I know uh, colleagues that are thinking about that, including you know the guys at Burns and others. Um, but uh, I do think that the mosaic of different conditions make would would make absorbing fire in a landscape a much well. The evidence just shows that it will so. And we've right. done that with field research as well as modeling and and other ways. I know we may have gone a little bit long here, but I'm not sure that we got through uh, the six new principles for conservation of pattern and process. And I'm not quite sure we left off. I know for sure that you said that uh, having large continuous tracts of rangelands, or whatever we want to call them, large chunks of land is really important in order for these different patterns and processes to exist and interact with each other. Uh, I think you mentioned that uh, stalking rate is still a primary factor. You know, if you've got, if you've got 10 acres, you can't have a thousand head of cattle on there. It doesn't matter how intensively you manage. Right. And if you've got 10,000 acres, it probably will support more than one. And then there's some range in the middle where, uh, you likely are able to maintain natural patterns and processes. Right. And the optimum probably changes year to year. Well, it does change year to year. So, Right. Which is related to principle number three, that uh, trying to achieve uniform distribution of animals is probably not possible and, and wouldn't even be desirable. Right. Yes. And which, which originally, uh, you know, I was probably a bit brazen to put that one in there, but, <laughs> but I, I really wanted to say that because I sort of felt like what you said earlier is correct. And that is that it mostly can't be done, but, but then that begs the question, well, then why are, is that two of our four proper principles? If, you know, uh, and I think the real, the real rub there is that the propers say proper distribution and proper in space and proper distribution in time. But really no one ever really questioned what proper was. (laughs) So those, 
those uh, those principles can hold up if you just broaden the way we think of proper. So if you think proper is uniform, then number three is counter to those two. But if you don't, then the two propers still hold. <laughs> yeah, and I think you mentioned in the paper that the idea of distribution partly came out of the applicant, the combination of applying a moderate leaning toward a heavy stocking rate, uh, ending up with pretty heavily used critical areas like riparian zones. Right, right. Which wouldn't be a big deal if there was some some temporal diversity in that. But when that happens every year, then it becomes a press disturbance instead of a pulse disturbance. You could sustain that kind of heavy use in a riparian zone if it happened once every five years, but not annually. Exactly. And and that's one of the things I, I that really bothers me about the politics of grazing in the West is how much of it is based on on photographs, which photographs can be really useful. I'm not, uh, as your earlier podcast have said, but I I think dishonest photographs are, can also be very useful to the people who are trying to be dishonest. And sometimes right. it's not willful, but uh, you know, if what you just described happened and someone was there to take the picture the wrong year. Um, then, uh, you know, there would be all kinds of challenges, but I think you're exactly right. It's, and not to sound like I want, want to be Einstein or anything, but you really can't separate time and space in this context, uh, because, you know, heavy utilization is not bad as long as it, uh, you know, ideally it'll move in space and time. Yeah. I remember Kendall Johnson saying in a a class one time about the history of land use in North America uh, that he had read some accounts of Lewis and Clark coming across the Great Plains and they would describe coming through in May when you've got waist-high grass, butterflies everywhere, flowers are blooming, the antelope are prancing around through the grass and then they would come back through in September and October and it looked like uh, you know a seven bottom plow had come through and the <laughs> streams were disconnected pools of buffalo urine those are those are his exact words I think yeah you know you've got a, a pretty severe a pretty severe impact there but but likely that was um not homogeneous across the Great Plains. That was a, a spot that had that kind of impact. Right. And it, it likely wouldn't occur again for some time. Right. Exactly. It would occur again, but it'd be the next, you know, the next drainage over. Exactly. And, and you know, you had, you had Nathan Saron, who, uh, who's, who was great and, you know, talked sort of about this. Um, it's very related to the Holling and Mephi sort of the, pathology of uh, uh, conservation or natural resource management. But but the idea that, uh, you know, we moved out of this Clemencian world where, where disturbance was bad and we're supposed to be past that now. But it's really interesting to me that we really haven't gotten past that. Uh, I mean, 
we can all talk about it. So we've all, we don't want to say we're not past it, but it does seem like it's really easy to slip back into it. And, and in some ways it's admirable that people actually want, you know, it's nice that people want clean water (laughs) and, you know, biodiversity, but it's, uh, it's really easy to get into, uh, hating disturbance and and in some landscapes where you know the pulse versus the press uh issue has arisen and it's sort of just within a region maybe very uniform heavy grazing uh uh maybe there's some logic into having some regions that uh have less grazing or but but uh i do feel like appreciating the importance of disturbance is something that the range community has always had, but, but but we do still slip into protecting the world. I mean, the next uh, principle is that fire regimes are critical too. And that's a really good example. I mean, for much of my life, um, uh, the, principles on uh on pu- public land is that if a fire happens you have to destock for two years and sometimes that makes sense and sometimes that doesn't make any sense and so it's sort of a similar sort of view that we have to protect all of these ecosystems and in reality mother nature is not all that caring uh sometimes she's kind of mean yeah Yeah, that's related to your principle number four, which I'm serious about getting through all of them. Okay. Uh, That managing for a single condition or state or phase or successional stage uh, probably isn't a good goal if we're trying to maintain a pattern and process in biodiversity, that the goal should be a shifting mosaic in order to have ecosystem structure and function. Yeah, and this is related back to uh, something that's been mentioned a couple of times, and uh, about you know how do you monitor this, and and I mentioned targets, and it's to me it's uh, a more reasonable description if you just want to use the vernacular of uh, Dykster House. Um, how much of the land is tolerable to be in? poor, fair, good, and excellent condition would be a more important metric than just everything trying to be excellent. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are are lots of reasons to have uh, poor condition. And I know that sounds funny when you say it. Oh, sure. That's related to your number five, which is that conservation of rangelands should consider all species of animals and plants. And you've talked a couple of times about different kinds of wildlife species that require what we would otherwise call early serial conditions. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what terminology we use if if we don't use that Clementian succession as the as the basis. But right, it it works know. still, I think, and and even plants, you know. Uh, in that paper, and when I talk about it, I often point to some of the uh, the leaders that people I looked up to when I was young, and some before that. And uh, 
that published and it was really interesting about developing this conservation what if we were doing conservation and um, you know when i looked at all the old books uh, they all talk about well there's some plants that are just not worth managing and uh, you know they'll they'll probably go away if we manage properly well the, you know if you were really interested in conservation that would be a troubling statement right uh but they often said a lot more than that so that's kind of out of context but uh but I do, you know, and then I was intrigued early on about, you know, Aldo Leopold used to talk about we had compass plant down here and basically compass plant under most traditional management is really hard to find if there are livestock in a pasture. And certainly it's hard to find if there's fairly uniform distribution. And so, uh, you know, how did that plant, where did that plant live? And was it not abundant? And, and the argument, then I think our data has sort of confirmed this is that species like that were just, they were, they're highly preferred, very palatable, very nutrition for nutritional forages, but they can't tolerate being grazed every year all the time. And there's, there's plants like that all through the West. So, yeah. uh, if you think about those plants instead of the dominant forage grasses, then all of a sudden you think, well, we've got to, we have to have different principles in order to manage these landscapes. And then you can also think about the animals and, uh, and wildlife and so forth. But, uh, so I was, uh, I included that because I, I largely the context of the paper was supposed to be, or at least the original thought was, well, what if we were focused mostly on conservation? And then, so six is, um, I mean, I mean, five is almost a complete restatement of that, that all plants and animals, mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially saying that we would be focused on conservation. Mm -hmm. I think your principle number six is a good, uh, a good, concluding statement for the interview you've given me a lot of your time and i'll let you off the hook here in a second uh, number six you say disturbance regimes such as fire and grazing are as vital to ecosystem structure and function as climate and soils they must be viewed as interactive processes if we're to have any hope of maintaining biodiversity uh, that's, a, that's a pretty broad and strong <laughs> statement yeah, and, and and there's probably a lot of my own baggage in that statement. But, um, you know, I just, uh, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, th th there's obviously a lot of attention now on climate, and I think it's very important. Uh, but, uh, but when I walk in, in the range community as well as in the conservation community, uh, I think that the general understanding of uh, of how these ecosystems are are structured and also how they were structured is uh, not well understood, and that just that if the climate changes and or even if it doesn't change, but all those other things change, everything's going to change too. So it's sort of uh, 
just to get those all up on the same uh, level field. And in fact, not long ago, I was asked to write a paper about uh, the whole rewilding concept, which can give you uh, uh, can give a lot of people heartburn, and rightfully so. But the thing I tried to argue in that was more important than what animals you put back is really i said you have to have the climate that's suited you have to have the the people are really important and then you have to uh then you have to have sort of the the biophysical realm well most people want to argue about whether we should have cows or bison or pleistocene uh, megafauna and in reality my argument was that um the pattern is actually more important and it doesn't matter which one of those you have and that ranchers can uh can can produce beef and create the same kind of patterns and that there's not as much difference or the other way of looking at that is that everything has changed so much that even if you just put bison back out there it's not going to be like it was in 1491 if that was a right. magical time Right. So it's to try and get everyone to think a little more uh, about these processes from a regional conservation standpoint and recognize that things like grazing and fire are very important. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I'm, I think regardless of what happens with climate, you know, we, we know for sure that there has been significant climate variation in the past and regardless of what happens to the climate in the future whether variability increases or uh, or if it's unidirectional and everything's warmer the only way to be uh, responsive to that is to maintain maximum heterogeneity and biodiversity so that so that you can respond to whatever happens I, uh, I agree entirely. I, I mean, it's the, the six, you know, six patches make you six times less likely to be entirely wrong. And, right. uh, you know, uh, it's sort of like, well, is fire exclusion a great idea? Probably not. Is grazing exclusion everywhere a great idea? Probably not. And, uh, and does that mean everything ought to be grazed heavy? Probably not. <laughs> and right. so it, I agree with you that the one thing that's true about the future is that it's more uncertain than the past. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we're, uh, that's all the more reason to sort of have a more heterogeneous landscape. That's a great conclusion. Uh, Dr. Fielendorf, thank you for your time. Thank you, Tip. It's an honor to be a part of your podcast. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. 
This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.